like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick uh, in roughly the order that they were published. In this episode, we'll be taking a very in-depth and close look at Dick's 1965 novel, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. This is a pretty famous novel in, in, in the Philip K. Dick canon. It's one a lot of people read. It's, it's one that people go back to if they want to really emphasize like the religious side of Dick's writing. If they're really interested like in the later 70s and 80s writings, the Valis trilogy in particular, the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge is a good place to go back to to find some of the roots of his ideas. It, it's sometimes seen as his first kind of overtly religious novel or a book dealing with religious themes. Now, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, I don't really think that's entirely true. I do think that thinking about religion is a fear. But earlier on, especially in the 50s, he thought about religion in really preternatural ways, like trying to use science fiction to give context to, to religious phenomena, like in stories like The Skull, for instance, is a good example of that, or a prominent author is another. Um, here in this novel, of course, he gets much more mystical, and it relates to, to themes of, of kind of solidarity and empathy and kind of shared experiences, which is something he plays with in The Little Black Box, the short story we, we've already looked at. Of course, that connects to the Android Dream of Electric Sheep because the same device is there. But the idea of a religious experience being a collective and shared experience or a collective delusion is something he's playing with in this novel as well. I will say it's a very interesting novel. It's a very good one. It's got some really great ideas. It, it harkens back to questions of the frontier. So if you like Martian time slip and the way he was playing with the idea of the Martian frontier and what it would look like, you know, this is a nice contrast to that. It's not the same frontier, but they have some similarities in that it's kind of a banal place. It's actually much more brutal in The Three Stigmata Palmer Eldridge than it ever is in Martian Time Slip, but you get that same kind of feeling of degradation and stagnation and kind of uh, futility. There are also themes of, of corporate power and and post-humanism makes, makes an appearance here as well. So there's a psychoanalysis psycho psycho, psycho is part of it. S you know, the, the kind of the authority of, of states enters into it. I mean, Dick's doing a lot in this rather short novel. And as always, he sometimes gives everything a little bit too much. Uh, you know, he throws ideas there and then he kind of moves on from them and goes on to other things. So it doesn't fully develop some of these, these things as much as maybe more contemporary authors would. But nonetheless, this is the place to go for, for a lot of different things, even like the broken marriage theme, the frontier, the, the nature of corporate power, the surveillance state is here a little bit too. Now, the short stories you should read if you want to fully understand the Three Stigmata Palmer Eldridge, the Philip Dick short stories anyways. I think the two most important are The Little Black Box, 
for getting into this idea of the collective religious experience and the shared delusion being a religious experience. Um, that comes up a lot in this novel. And then I would also say, take a look at the days of Perky Pat. That's a different setting. It, it, it's completely different in a lot of ways, but the idea of people in a degraded, pathetic environment, in this case it's Mars, in this short story it was a post-apocalyptic, a post-war Earth. But in, the, in this novel, it's set on, it's, it's people on, the, on Mars that need to consume these uh, toys to basically survive and to, and to manage their lives. Now, the difference is in the days of Perky Pet, it's basically old people, middle-aged people playing with dolls to try to live out their past. In the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, it's actually a drug that they take, which lets them translate them and have experiences as if they're the dolls in a more, uh, I don't want to say realistic, but in a, in a more direct sense, they're actually experiencing things. So the drug actually projects them into the... The, the game board, it's still like Barbie and Ken dolls. Of course, they're called um, Perky Pat, Pat and Walt here. Um, but it's, a, it's the same idea you have there. But there, it's, in the story, it's more the imagination of these people who can't stop living in the pre-war past. Here, it's, it's people just actually taking drugs to cope and having these shared, shared delusions. I wonder if, what's the gap between that story and four or five years? Anyway, so this novel, unlike most Bill novels, starts with, a, with an epigraph. It's a fictional epigraph. It's not from any poetry or, or famous literature. It's actually um, from an inter-office memo produced by one of the, the characters, Leo Pulero. He is the, the head of a company called PP Layouts, or Perky Pat Layouts. And here's what the memo says. Quote, I mean, after all, you have to consider we're only made out of dust. That's admittedly not much to go on. I shouldn't forget that. But even considering, I mean, it's a sort of bad beginning. We're not doing so bad. So I personally have faith that even in this lousy situation we're faced with, we can make it. You get me? Okay, cool. So um, as you read the novel, you can think back to that that quote and what Dick is trying to say. Certainly there are characters, especially those on Mars, that are in this situation of really a horrible, miserable situation. Yet, uh, you know, they always kind of look at how you know, the perseverance of the human spirit in spite of those conditions. It's, it's always there in the, in the, back, in the backdrop. Okay, so the setting of the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, it's set in several locations, partially on Mars, a little bit on Ganymede, some in kind of like weird, trippy, drug-induced environments, manufactured environments, or maybe their true reality. It's a little bit unclear from time to time. 
And then there's also a study on Earth. Earth, let's start with Earth. Earth is suffering from global warming and overpopulation. The prime authority on Earth is the UN. Uh, one of the most important corporations on Earth is PP Layouts, and they have been enriched off of the expansion into the colonies. Now, they sell these perky pad layouts, these basically doll houses for people to play with uh, in the frontier settlements. But their real main income comes from the selling of the drug that allows people to translate into those playthings, and that's called candy. And that's illegal, but the UN kind of wink winks at uh, shipments to the colonies because people seem to need it. Um, you can still get that on Earth, but it's, it's more rare there. People there don't use it. But Earth's kind of miserable, too, because of global warming. Uh, there are many people with post-human abilities, especially precognition. Some of them get it from birth, and some get it through um, kind of they go to special clinics, e-clinics, where they evolve get enhanced powers. Leo Bolero is one of those people who has had his abilities enhanced and he's a near precog. There are actually several precog characters in, in this novel. Now the settlements to the colonies are mostly un involuntary. So people are conscripted, there's a draft, and people are randomly chosen to, to settle on the colonies. And then the only way they can get out of this is with a psychological exam showing they can't handle the stress of living on the frontier. Area. So that's the main way these people are populated. There's, a, there's no longer this idea of a kind of a, a frontier population wanting to, to kind of have a renewal of life, like you saw in earlier Dick fictions. Here, the frontier is just a place of depositing human Kipple. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that theme certainly with the Android Dream of Electric Sheep, but Kipple is this, this trash, the leftovers, the garbage that surrounds us, right? And kind of multiplies and just floats around. Um, in the novel, you have this concept of Kipple at the same time that Earth is a garbage. The people there are just kind of the leftovers. It's the same here where the, the, there's no real purpose to the expansion except maybe alleviating some pressure on Earth or just because the UN wants to do that. The people live there, they have no way of making a living. They basically survive on drop shipments of supplies from, from Earth. It's pretty pathetic. Um, now, w there is a there are aliens in this world. Uh, they're just called things, and they're from Proxima, and they're the aliens, and they're forbidden in the Terran settlement. Now, sometime prior to the novel beginning, the famous industrialist Palmer Ellicott had left Earth, and he left for a number of years. And just as the novel opens, this character who's been gone and disappearing in the Proxima system is coming back on a ship, and he crash lands in Pluto sometime in the, the the first chapter, so around that time, it's talked about in the newspaper. Um, in the, I think right away in chapter one. So this happened off-screen early in the novel, and this is the precipitating event. And it's going to have corporate intrigue, but it's going to have cosmological and and divine consequences. Uh, that that trip that Palmer Eldridge took to to Proxima. So I think that's enough background to to kind of know where we are geographically in, in this novel. I don't know if any study has been fully done of building like geographical, like mapping his geography. Of course, every novel has its own kind of world, but there's some comparisons we can make. Like Proxima comes up a lot, Ganymede comes up a lot, Titan, uh, I think, comes up a lot, Mars is there a lot too. So there are a handful of locations that show up again and again. And 
you want to compare them across the works, it might lead to interesting results. But anyways, let's talk about the first three chapters of the Feast of Mana Palmer Eldridge. Um, so the story opens up with Barney Mayerson. He wakes up from a bender. He doesn't know where he is. There's a woman next to him who he doesn't recognize. And he immediately goes to his, his psychiatrist who's in a box, a computer in a box. And very humorously, the computer mispronounces um, Mayerson's name, which is just kind of a filthy joke, almost, about you know, a computer not being very accurate. The reason he has this psychiatrist is he's trying to prove that he can't handle the stress of migration because he's recently gotten stressed out. He asks the machine about what's going on and who's this woman he's with and where is he and he finds out that yeah he was drunk and you know out on a bender the night before with Ronnie Fugatti. Ronnie Fugatti is his new assistant. They're both precogs, both Barney and Ronnie are precogs and they work in for PP layout and they are essentially pre-fashion consultants or analysts. So what they do is they use their precognitive abilities to see future fashion trends. That's all. That's their job. And so if someone brings up a new thing for their layout, like a new ceramic toy for the PP layouts, they'll be able to look ahead and say, this is going to be popular, this is, and they'll reject or accept it based on that, that idea, based on, on their vision of the future. Now, there are multiple futures, but they're able to kind of percentages that, that idea of multiple futures is something they did in other short stories before. So this is not a new concept of precognition. What I think is a bit new here is just how silly and banal the work that the precogs are doing. They are essentially working for a, you know, for a, to make consumer goods. They're not using their precognitive abilities for anything more bold or interesting or like not to change the world or anything, not even to really see the future of politics or you know to try to improve humanity they're just trying to make money for the corporation they just have these kind of bureaucratic jobs now once in a while precogs will do more with that ability throughout the novel but the fact that that's kind of the, the, the default position for their ability is just to help a corporation make money is sad compared to what we've seen before about precogs post humans in this fiction where they were much grander and really almost the next stage of evolution here they're not that substantially different they just have a, than other humans they're just now, one ability that these, these precogs had, though, and th this is the case with Ronnie and Barney, is that they basically were chit-chatting. They realized at some point in the future they're going to be lovers. So they just said, let's just hook up now and get it over with. We're going to like each other anyways in the future. So they just move, they just speed along their, their relationship. So you kind of got a, you know, a me too in the works here. And this is not something that Dick is very sensitive about, obviously. Uh, he often has male characters sleeping with secretaries and glaring, um, you know, glaring at sexy women's bodies, you know, secretaries and things like that. You can think of the nipple dilation he's trying. Which one was that? And I want to say Martian Times would have that. But, you know, it, it, it's a, it comes up a lot, but the, the female characters here, especially Ronnie Fugate, is a little bit more well developed than some of the other women you see. But as we meet her, she's just like a, a sexual object for, for, for Barney. And it, it gets as bad as like she's doing workouts in the morning, naked, bouncing around. Um, 
But anyways, he starts to recreate. He has his, you know, like the hangover experience, right? He starts to recreate the night before, and then he decides to go to work. But the main things we learn here is that he's been drafted. Number one, he's been drafted, and he's trying to get out of it by getting the psychiatrist robot thing to say he can't handle the stress. Ronnie is his new assistant, probably soon to be his replacement. Well, you know, basically, she's really a talented, but she's new to the company, so they brought her in as an assistant to, to Barney Mayerson. And Barney Mayerson's main job is to be the, the one who looks at what craftspeople or, or designers bring in, and then decide if they're going to promote those and make them itself. Um, then, after that scene in this, I think it's in a hotel room, they move to this guy, Richard Knott. H-N-A-T-T. -T. He's talking to his wife, Emily. Emily is the ex-wife of, of Barney. So that, that's, that's kind of an important plot point. So you have these kind of flexible, non-permanent relationships. It does see though Barney regrets with Emily. There's a lot of resentment about that. We learn about that later. It's hinted at here as well in this part of the novel. Richard cannot That's the main thing. There's no other company that sells these layouts. It's a monopoly. CP layouts is the only game in town for this kind of work. So he goes to office salesman and the necktie sale like the neckties are made with Again, in some of his 60s writing, and here it's, it's clothing. And he's just a nice guy, kind of chit chatting with the mayor, commute, about the news. He does talk about crash on Pluto, and he thinks that maybe it's a thing, a monster, an alien from, from Proxima. But uh, it's also, there's rumors that Palmer Ellis is. Oh, one thing about the currency in this society, it's kind of interesting. Because of this replicate, replicatable technology, this life form that can replicate into anything you want, they had to find a money supply that couldn't be replicated. So one of the few things that these creatures can't turn into are truffle skins. And so truffle skins, or money's made out of truffle skins, which I think also is just Dick having a little bit of fun with the idea. I don't know how practical truffle skins would be as, as currency, but uh, that's, that's what he does here. I guess they're either, I don't know if they're dried or kind of woven truffle skins or just you know, spread out. I, you know, I don't think we gave you the description of them. They're just talked about. Um, so Barney Mayerson eventually shows up at, oh no, sorry, uh, Richard Hanat shows up at Barney Mayerson's office. He's invited in and he immediately objects to the ceramics. Once he knows Richard Hanat is in their Emily's, he, out of basically spite and resentment, he rejects them. Fugate, who's looking at this, disagrees, though, and she thinks one in particular is going to be very famous and become big and important. So she contradicts Barney Mayerson. This angers Mayerson more, 
he's also seems to have authoritarian um, complex, and he needs to have his underlings agree with him 100% in public and in private, as he later tells his employer. So she contradicts him in public, and this angers him, and he reconsiders. But he, at, the, at that last moment, he says, "I'm not, you know, I'm not really going to reconsider." So he might as well take your ceramics and get the hell out of here. And that's how chapter one ends. So chapter two, we were introduced to Leo Bolero, and he's the chairman of TP Layouts. He's got a lot on his mind. One thing he's worried about is this crash on Pluto, which is in the news, and he immediately thinks that this might be Palmer Eldridge returning, and anything that he doesn't quite understand or know, you know, bothers him. He has paid informants, he's got a secret police force. Felix Blau is the name of his, like, informant and the, the head of his secret police. He also got contacts in the UN, and he's a high-ranking big capitalist with, with his fingers and everything. There's a lot of tension, though, between the UN and PP layouts, primarily over the smuggling of drugs. They, they seem to let drugs be smuggled into the frontiers because people need it, but at the same time, they need to put up the front as they're fighting the good war on drugs. Right? And so once in a while, they'll, they'll capture a shipment and then force Bulero to do a favor for them you know, a little quick pro quo. So there's there's kind of an exchange of favors going on there. There's a, an uneasy relationship between the UN. And just as we the story opens, in addition to the crash on Pluto, a shipment of, of his drug, Candy, is called C-A-N-D, Candy, has been seized by the UN. And Leo is very upset about this. Quote, it was idiotic in view of the fact that PP layouts paid an enormous yearly tribute to the UN for immunity. But idiotic or not, a UN's Narcotics Control Bureau warship has seized an entire load of candy near, near to the north polar cap of Mars, almost a million skins worth on its way from the heavily guarded plantations on Venus. Obviously, the squeeze money was not reaching the right people within the complicated UN hierarchy. Um, now, that, we, that the fact that we have like a complicated state bureaucracy is not uncommon in Dick's fiction. The corporate hierarchy is often presented as much more streamlined and authoritarian and, and smooth and efficient. And I don't know if that really translates into reality. I tend to see corporate hierarchies just as clumsy and bureaucratic as, as government ones, maybe in different ways, but you know, neither is really the pinnacle of efficiency. So with these problems, he starts to call in his favors. He, he talks to Felix Blau um, and Felix informs him that the ship is, in fact, Palmer Eldridge returning. And that not only is he returning, but he's brought back some lichens with him, probably from Proxima. This is, of course, illegal, but Palmer Eldridge will eventually claim that these lichens were brought with him from Earth. And he's a returning uh, species that is made from Earth. But it's pretty clear that these are imported, an imported species that he's using for some, some reason. He eventually calls the UN Secretary General, who apparently he has on speed dial. He can just call the UN Secretary General whenever he wants. And he wants information on Eldridge as well. And he's willing to work with the UN to, to you know, to, he's trying to present Eldridge as a threat that the UN should work with Leo Bularo with trying to contain or, or stop. So there's already a big tension between whatever Palmer Eldridge is up to and Leo Bolero, who sees it as a threat. And as the chapters go on, we're going to learn that this is indeed true, that, that Palmer Eldridge is presenting an existential threat to his business. Well, it's revealed that Ned Lark, who's the chief of the UN Narcotics Division, 
they're the ones who seize the, the cargo. They want something from TP layouts, particularly uh, regarding the distribution and the use of candy, the, this drug. We'll talk about what that drug da does in, in, in an upcoming chapter. I think chapter three. And chapter three is all about candy. Now Mayerson comes in and he's all puffed up over Miss Fugate, who he's sleeping with, who's now his mistress, contradicting him in front of uh, a vendor. Now it's acknowledged that, it, partially because Bulero is partially a precog himself, thanks to his genetic modifications and looks at those evolution clinics. Every, they both know that there are possible alternative futures, and precog can see several different futures, and there's not you know, just because Mayerson is convinced this isn't going to work doesn't mean Ronnie Fugatti's wrong. She may have access into a different future. So Bolero's point of view is like, maybe she's right. Maybe, you know, you should listen to her. But Barney is more upset about his pride and being contradicted in public and having his underling um, speak up, you know. Even in, she says, like, even in private, I don't want her contradicting him. So he's got a, he's got, maybe he's got women's issues seems to be part of it, at least at this point in the story. Um, they talk about Barney's psychiatric treatment and the draft notice, and that's in the backdrop here. And this is going to become a tool that Leo's able to, to be able to use to control Barney, because you know, he's got enough power and clout to stop Barney's forced emigration to Mars without necessarily going through the normal process of failing a psychic evaluation. Now, they do t also talk about the, just the need for Candide on the front despite it being illegal and illegal drug, people on the frontier simply cannot survive without a ready supply of candy. So Leo Bolero then is, we next see him at lunch with a woman named Pia Jurgens, and she's one of his mistresses. He seems to have several. He's got one, a cat mistress, like on a satellite. He you know, sometimes invites people to, to be his cat mistress up in the satellite. He does that to, to Rani Fugati, for instance, later on. Um, but he's just, you know, he, he keeps his own little harem of, of hot women around, as, as you might expect. Um, we learn a little bit more about Leo's expanded frontal lobe, which gives him somewhat um, uh, precog abilities. We have a robot waiter, so once again, we, we need to keep in mind that we're in kind of a post-scarcity economy in which a lot of work is automated. And that, that's part of the problem on the frontier, too, is that there's, there's simply not that much to do. The UN just drops in these supplies from from space and people take what they want, but there's not like work. And that's a big difference from Martian times, or at least there was work. And that, that normal jobs and unions and projects and things like that. Here it's just, it's like people living in hovels. It's, it's much more depressing. Now Leo invites this woman, this redhead, uh, to, to take Candide. He talks about how he doesn't use layouts the next chapter how these layouts work. He says, let's just eat it, let's just chew it. It's like gum you chew. And then you can have a kind of a mutually shared experience. And that's what candy essentially does. Is it connects people into a, a shared delusion. Now, if you have a layout, it, it kind of gives you something to translate onto, but you can just take it and experience the, the shared world together. Here's what uh, is written about that. Leo's saying, talking a little to her about what Candy does. Listen, Leo said, I can get you some. He would, of course, chew it with her. In concert of users' minds, views become a new unity, or at least that was the experience. A few sessions of Candy chewing and togetherness, and he would know all there was to know about the inner 
there was something about her beyond the obviously physical anatomical enormity that fascinated him. He yearned to be closer to her. We won't do the layout. By an irony here, the creator and the manufacturer of the person had microbes preferred to in the back. What did the chair have to gain from the chair so much? It was in the conditions in the average parent city. For settlers on a howling gale swept moon, probably at the bottom of a hovel against frozen methane pistons and things, it was entirely something else again. Perky Pat and her layouts were an entry back to the world in which they were born. But he, Leo Bolero, was he was damn tired of the world getting born and was still involved on. Even Winnie the Pooh ate this with all quaint and not so quaint diversions and not so important. However, man, that, that's kind of the summary of, of what Candy does and then why people on, on Mars do stuff. Yeah, because they're trying to relive what they've lost on Earth. They're, they're essentially living in a slum. Space first began, she sort of thought they'd find God in space, and Bolero sort of seems to agree with that. And, and this is something that's going to come back in, in later chapters when we get to the main story and in, in this novel. So he goes back to work and he meets Ronnie Fugati, and you know, Ronnie knows she's in trouble for contradicting Barney in front of the customers, and he basically scolds her on that. But he also tries to And he's approached by a guy named Mr. Eccles, and he's a representative of a company like Choosy, Choosy or something like that. And he, they want to buy his layouts. They want to basically you know, start their own company. And this shocks Richard at first because PP Layouts is a monopoly, and they have all the business. And now we got this new company asking to buy his layouts for apparently a different type of drug called Choosy. So that's the two drugs we have. We have candy and choosy. A lot of the novels going to be about the two different experiences that these drugs offer up. Right? We already know candy is creating this kind of collective uh, delusion, which we have shared. People can share a delusion together or an experience together. Now, what choosy does is something we're going to have to wait and find out, but it's certainly not the same. Emily uh, hears about this and. Richard basically said, like, oh, we're well, going to be rich now, and so I'm going to have us a trip. We're going to go on a trip. We're going to go to e-therapy, and we're going to evolve, and we're going to be upgraded. Blah, blah, blah. She doesn't really want to do that, but he's all excited because now 
sell his, his stuff. So we, we learned that since a competing company out there trying poach business away from a real arrow and poach his suppliers. And this may be the alternate future. This takes off. This might be the alternate future that Ryan Jack saw that she said this will be this piece will be popular. She didn't say it would be popular because it's sold by people by us. It be sold by, by Tuesday or another company. For the rest of chapter three though, we jump to a place called Chicken Pock Prospects on Mars. It's kind of a gross sounding name, Chicken Pock Prospects. But that's, that's the feeling we get with these Martian hobble communities. They're essentially slums on Mars where people don't have anything to do. They survive off of these drop shipments from space and they spend much of their free time on drugs to still way they in fact, well, the first thing we see is supplies being dropped in, and, you know, radios and things like that, and there's like a complication. Uh, the main character we meet here is named Sam Regan. So there's Sam Regan and then his partner Fran. And the, the heart of this, I don't, I don't know how much detail we have to go into this, but they talk a lot about what these drugs do, and people experience it different and have different interpretations about it. So apparently some people think the the experience is incidental to the drug, and other people think that you can't translate without the drug. So there, there is a kind of two different interpretations about what's going on there. But these people are all on this this drug, right? Even the people who say it's not really about the drug itself still take the drug and still chew it. Um, so this, the centerpiece of this chapter is Sam and Fran, and then some other people join later on. They set up the layout a new layout with, with new clothes for and a new location for the two dolls for, for Pat and Walt. They chew the, the candy and they, they're projected in. And this becomes a very cathartic experience too. For instance, people can commit crimes while they're translated, like they can murder people they hate, they can do all sorts of, of crimes, steal or whatever, and it's not a true crime because it's just like a, a, a delusion. Right, but it it's allows them to actually make commit violence against people, sort of in, in, in something they can experience, right? Because if you're killed while translated, that's something you're experiencing, even if you're not really physically physically dead. Um, translation is described at one point as almost a type of immortality, but it's also an experience of immortality that ends because eventually the drug wears out. So they they basically that's what happens here. They find this setting, they like it, and they, they have a good time in it. It's, I think they're at the beach in, in, in this case. So they're experiencing things they missed and will never see again because they're on Mars. As the, uh, it begins to break down as the drug wears off. And the aftermath of the experience is almost described as, as a hangover. Quote, and by the layout, the plain brown wrapper that had contained candy, the five of them had chewed it out of existence. And even now, as he looked against his will, he saw a thin trickle of shiny brown syrup emerge from each of their slack, willless mouths. Across from him, Fran shined, stirred, opened her eyes, moaned. She focused on him, then we wearily sighed. They got to us, he said. We took too long. She rose unsteadily, stumbled, and almost fell. At once, he was up to catching hold of her. So it, it just is experienced like a hangover, like everything from the, the wrappers. You can imagine like beer cans being the, the image that would correspond with a normal hangover. You know, the grogginess, the, the stumbling, the, the kind of mumbling and talking nonsense, all that stuff is, is 
replicated here. And we're told in so many different ways in this chapter that the people at Chickenpox Prospect are just dependent on this candide. In fact, the last line of the chapter is, we could even use a little more. So they're really desperate for that stuff. So this takes us not quite a quarter of the way through, but chapter-wise, what a quarter of the way through. Um, yeah, so we're, what we got here is we got the main setting. We got what's going on in Mars. We got the return of Palmer Eldridge. We've met Barney. Ronnie Fugate and, and Leo, so we know what's going on in PP layouts. We know there's a threat to PP layouts from the return of Palmer Eldridge, and, and we understand how this drug works and how the layouts work. So that's the setting we're, we're, we're given here. So anyway, it's a good novel, so pick it up if you haven't start, uh, started reading. If you haven't had a chance to read this novel yet, do look at it. Um, next time I'll cover chapters four, five, and six which will take us to about the half in, in the novel. So as always, thanks for listening. Please leave your comments below. Or if there's anything I missed, any important themes or, or ideas I didn't cover, please put them down. You can write a review of this podcast, or you can just send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com, and I will, will try to respond to you. So um, again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with part two of my comments and thoughts on the three stigmata of Palmer Elf. If you'll